right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together again here in mid-September. How fast things are moving along. But it's good to be back together, and I'm glad that you've uh, selected to join with us this morning in our study of the Word. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing our look and inching a little bit closer to the conclusion of our study of the book of Amos. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please begin the process of turning to the book of Amos? Uh, we're going to pick up today in chapter 7 uh, and make our way uh through a couple of chapters this morning. So let me pray for us, uh, even as perhaps you're looking for that passage. Father, we do ask uh, for you to come and meet with us. And we pray that your word, Lord, uh, would speak to our hearts, and not just in the sense of we've learned some things, uh, but Lord, that we'll be able to leave from here having the ability to apply some things. Uh, and so Lord, we do invite your spirit uh, to challenge us and to minister to us. And uh, we put aside the distractions that we can hear from you. And so bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I said, we are in Amos chapter 7. In Amos uh, chapter 7, I've been saying for a little while, it begins the second section of the book. So there's two sections primarily of the book of Amos. There's chapters 1 through 6, which are a whole bunch of sermons that Amos God gives to Amos to give to the people of Israel. And then chapters 7, 8, and 9, which are a whole bunch of visions that God gave to Amos uh, to tell him what he was about to do with the nation of Israel. And so there's a transition that takes place as we go from 6 to 7. And you'll notice chapter 7, the way that verse 1 begins, it begins with, and this is what the Lord God showed me. If you have your Bibles, look down to verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord God showed me. If you look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, this is what he showed me. And then chapter 8, verse 1, once again, he says, this is what the Lord God had showed me. So it's these series of visions that God gave to uh, Amos. Now, chapter 7 is going to have three of the five visions that God gives Amos in these final three chapters. Uh, and the first of those two visions are what we might call visions of warning, or they're warning visions. Um, that God gave uh, to Amos. The first will be of uh, a group of locusts coming and destroying the land. The second will be a, a fire that moves through and devours the land. Then God's going to give Amos a third vision. This is all in chapter 7, and it's going to be a vision of a plumb line, uh, which will reveal sort of this helpless situation that Israel is going to find itself in because of its failure. So with that as sort of an intro to chapter 7, let's look at the first vision. It starts in verse 1. It says, Now this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings, when they had finished eating the grass of the land. And I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. Well, as we read, the Lord shows a swarm of locusts, and he, he says that this swarm of locusts is going to enter into the land during the time of the latter growth, that it's going to enter into the land to destroy the land. So now catch that. Notice it says it's the latter growth, and you see there in verse 1, the end of verse 1, it says, after the king's mowings. Some versions translate that word mowings as harvesting, and that's what it is. Uh, and so that word mowings, which means harvesting, it points out to us that there was a few different harvestings or mowings that took place. So there was a first harvest, and then there was a second. Now, the first harvest came early 
in the growing seasons. And in many ways, it kind of served as a, a form of taxation on the part of the king. And that's why it became known as the king's mowing or the king's harvest. And so this very early harvest, which took place earlier in the year, essentially went to the king and the king's treasury. The second harvest, the one that comes after the king's mowing, this was known as the harvest of the latter growth. This was the harvest that the people could keep. This is the harvest that, uh, to equate in our place, would come in, in the fall and in autumn and things like that. This would be the harvest, where the food of which would be used throughout the winter to feed the people, to feed their animals, and those sorts of things. And so if this second harvest, which comes at the end of the season, is taken away or is destroyed, well, then what that means is that the people of Israel are indeed in trouble. Uh, because it would create such a dire circumstance where the people had no food to feed themselves or their animals or what have you. And so this dire circumstance, which Amos sees, is about to come upon the northern kingdom. It, it moves him. It prompts him. Notice it says that he, he pleads with the Lord. He says, oh, Lord God, please forgive Israel. Don't, don't cause this to happen because of Israel's sin. He goes to God. He cries to God for mercy. And we see uh, in verse 3 that the Lord responds to Amos' prayer. The Lord says, this shall not be. Uh, the whole scenario reminds me of the story in the Old Testament uh, where God reveals to Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins to go to the Lord and he says, oh Lord, please don't. He says, what if there's 50 people in that city? You're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And God says, if there's 50, I won't. He says, well, okay, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? You know, for the sake of 10, you're not going to destroy the city, are you? And God says, I won't destroy the city. Well, Amos here, like Abraham, he petitions the Lord for his mercy on behalf of his people. And the Lord says uh, that it shall not be. It says that he relents concerning this. In verse 4, notice we have our second vision. This one says this. It says, now this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and it was eating up the land. And then I said, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord. All right, so the first vision is of locusts coming in and eating up the land. The second vision is of a fire that is coming in in judgment, that would devour up the land or that would eat up the land uh, as well. And in response to this, Amos what does what he did following the first vision. He pleads to God for mercy. And you see, he says, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. He won't be able to handle this, Jacob being another name for Israel. And we see again, once more, God responds. He declares that this judgment shall also not be. We see that there in verse 6. Now, a question I think we need to ask ourselves as we look at these passages, certainly we have just sort of the history there, but we have to ask ourselves this question, is Amos changing the mind of God with his prayers? Well, first, it's clear something is happening in response to Amos's prayers, because in both instances, uh, the Lord's judgment has been averted because Amos is praying. So something is clearly happening as a result of Amos's prayer. The text is pretty clear here that God relents of the judgment that he was prepared to pour out upon the nation of Israel. And he does so because 
of Amos's intercession. And so then, if Amos or anyone else didn't cry out, I think it's, it's appropriate for us to draw the conclusion that it's safe to assume that the Lord would have brought the judgment that he said he was going to bring. It seems that we have to uh, recognize that that's the case. God's not just mouthing off here. You know, he's not sort of just frustrated and saying, I'm going to do something that he had never any intention of really doing. And so do Amos's prayers have an effect? It seems that they do. The second question, though, I would ask is this. Who is it that is pr actually prompting Amos to pray for these people in the first place? And I think the answer to that question is the same person that moves you and I to be praying about anything ourselves the one that's prompting Amos to pray is the Lord. And so God relents to Amos's prayer because God is the one that prompted Amos to be praying that prayer. And so while the Lord had every intention to follow through on his threat, at the same time, he had every intent to raise someone up that would petition him not to follow through on his intent, knowing all along that he would find an intercessor in Amos that would give him sort of this righteous excuse not to bring this judgment. Now listen, the topic and the practice of prayer, it's a rather interesting one for us as Christians. Because as Christians, we recognize and we believe that God is sovereign, but that might force us or cause us then to ask the question, if God is sovereign, he's going to do what he wants to do anyway, then why do we bother to pray? If God is going to do what he's going to do anyway, why even bother spending time petitioning him for things? And the answer to that question, as simple as it may seem, we pray because God tells us to pray. It's an obedient response to God's command that we pray. And that in and of itself needs to be reason enough for us as Christians. Now, do other things happen during our times of prayer or as a result of our times of prayer? Do other things happen in us and through us? I believe there are. And so through prayer, God teaches us a greater dependence on him when we pray. As we look to him to move and to do things, and we, we bring the burdens that are on our hearts, that causes a growth independence within us. That's something God does in us because of prayer. God moves us to pray not according to our own will, but according to his will as we pray. Sometimes God even changes what it is we think we're going to be praying for when we sit down to pray as he begins to work within us. And so God moves us during prayer. As we pray for others, God gives us a greater heart for others. It's hard to, have, it's hard to pray for a person you don't have a heart for. And so as we pray for other people, God enlarges our heart for those people or for the things that we are praying for as we pray. So these, these are all the different things that God accomplishes in us when we pray, but they're not necessarily the reasons why we pray. Ultimately, the reason why we pray is because God told us to pray. He instructs us to pray. And so God moved upon the heart of Amos to pray that he would relent uh, from these judgments that he revealed or showed to Amos. And in both cases, God does exactly that. Now let's go into verse 7. It says, now this is what he showed me. So we have the third vision. It says, behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall that was built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, I see a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, 
I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'll never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac will be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Excuse me, one second. There's a few changes that take place here in this third vision. Obviously, the first one is of what the vision itself actually is. And in this third vision, Amos sees the Lord standing beside a wall with a plumb line. We see that there in verse 7. Now, you may not be familiar with a plumb line. I had to remind myself of some things. A plumb line is a string with a weight that hangs down off the end of it. And it's used to measure whether a wall has been, has been built vertically straight or not. And so as you hang this plumb line off, if there's a gap at the top that's different from the gap at the bottom, your wall is not straight. And in this third vision, Amos sees the Lord standing by this wall, you'll notice there in verse 7, that had been previously built according to a plumb line. That means it was previously vertically straight. And now the Lord is standing there and measuring whether that wall remains or continues to be straight. As the text will go on to make clear, Israel is that wall. And as the plumb line is going to reveal, Israel doesn't measure up. Israel's become crooked. It's become uh, off balance, if you will. They're nowhere near to being measured to plumb. Because Israel had strayed from God and from the standard of his word. Israel had become crooked in all of their ways, and they had given themselves to sin and to rebellion, despite the many warnings for them to return, now they're going to experience the consequences of that rebellion, what this entire book has been building up toward and speaking of. You'll notice this uh, as a takeaway. Notice this, especially in these days in which we live, in which we are an enlightened people, and we know so much more than anyone else that has ever lived in times past. Notice this, God and his word is the standard. I think too often what we see today is people trying to measure God's word by their standard or the standard of their lives or the standard of their thinking or the standard of their deductions, what they have come up with. People try to measure God's word by their standard when in the, real the reality is this, we are measured by God's word. We are measured by God's standard. And so how many people will look at the Bible, read the things that it says in there and say, oh, well, that, that speaks to a different time. You're measuring God's word by your present standard. Just the opposite is going to take place. God's word will not be measured by our standard. We will be measured by its standard. Now, you'll notice that's what's going on with Israel. And you'll notice in this third vision, uh, a change, another change. Amos doesn't pray that God would relent. There's no appeal, there's no prayer on the part of Amos on behalf of the people. And there's no relenting on the part of the Lord. And that caused me to ask another question. We've been asking some questions today. Another question, why doesn't Amos pray that the Lord might relent? I think it goes back to why did Amos pray that the Lord would relent? And that is because God didn't move Amos to pray that he would relent. Again, the Lord is the one who stimulates us to pray. And in this instance, the Lord didn't stimulate Amos to pray. Because Israel, and that's both its political leaders and its military leader, its um, political leaders, its spiritual leaders, all those leaders and the people that followed those leaders, they had gone too far to the place now where judgment was inevitable. 
And so we see, as it says uh, in verse 9, it says, And thus their sanctuaries will be laid waste, and that the sword will rise against the house of Jeroboam, who you recall is the king. Their sanctuaries, their high places, their altars, their places where they worshipped both, they, they thought, both the Lord and their false gods, it says, they will be laid waste, and then the house of Jeroboam will be delivered over to the sword. Because Israel failed to measure up to God's standard and the standard of his word, she and her leadership are going to be judged by the sword, Amos tells us, which we know will ultimately be the Assyrian Empire in just about 20 years. Now, there's still two additional visions in the final section of this book, but before we get to those visions, you'll notice there's sort of this interruption. And so this is one of the only narrative accounts, stories that take place in the book. Amos had been preaching all of these sermons. Now he's personally receiving these visions. And along comes this man, Amaziah. We begin to read of him in verse 10. It says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile from his land. Amos, or Amaziah, I should say. It says he's the priest of Bethel. You recall Bethel was one of the places, it was sort of the, the capital city of spiritual Israel. Um, it was kind of like the Vatican, for instance, for the Catholic Church. Uh, that was Bethel. Amaziah was the chief priest, the high priest there uh, in the city of Bethel. Now you recall, Amos was from the southern village of Tekoa, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah. A small little farming town, not too many people, more animals probably than people live in that little town. Um, Bethel was a big, bustling city of the northern kingdom. And you recall, as we studied in chapter 1, that God took Amos from his small little town of Judah and sent him to this big, bustling city of Bethel in the northern kingdom. And Amaziah, who's the head of the religion of, of Bethel, He's the chief priest there of Bethel. He's bothered by Amos's presence. He's heard the, the many different sermons, either in person or he's heard about them, that Amos has been delivering against the northern kingdom, and he's bothered by it. And so he comes up with a plan. We've got to get rid of this Amos fella. He's just got to go away. And his plan is to report Amos to the king of Israel. Again, the man whose name is Jeroboam. Historically, we often call him Jeroboam II, uh, who ruled over Israel right around 800 BC. And he sends word to Jeroboam. Amaziah sends word to Jeroboam, and he says, look, this Amos fella is conspiring against you. He's making plans to overthrow you. He needs to uh, we need to get rid of him. You'll notice what it says there at the end of verse 10. It says, the land is not able to bear all of his words, i.e., let's get rid of him. Let's get him out of here. He shouldn't be here any longer. And I don't know if Amaziah's hope is that Jeroboam would expel Amos from the country or kill Amos. I, he doesn't really tell us. I suspect Amaziah wouldn't care one way or the other as long as Amos's voice is silent. That's what he wants. He wants Amos to stop prophesying in Bethel. And it even seems he makes something up 
that Amos supposedly said to kind of sway the king's opinion. Again, it says there that uh, he's trying conspiring against Amos. We never see it, or against Jeroboam. We never see that uh, in any of Amos's words. Um, in fact, I don't think Amos said it because Amos, this is not the way that Jeroboam would go on to die. We read in 2 Kings chapter 4 the way that Jeroboam actually died. And so if Amos had said these certain things and it didn't occur in that particular way, then according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, Amos wouldn't be a true prophet of God. And so I think it's very safe for us to consume, uh, to uh, conclude, it's safe for us to conclude that Amos didn't actually say those words, but that our friend Amaziah, or this fellow Amaziah, is twisting these words so as to get Amos into more trouble. Additionally, we see in verse 12, he sort of begins to harass uh, Amos. Verse 12 said, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, O prophet, go flee away to the land of Judah. Eat your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy in Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. You can summarize uh, Amaziah's words by simply, this is what he said to Amos. Why don't you go back to where you came from? I don't know if you've ever heard somebody tell you that, but it's, it's a little offensive uh, if somebody would say that to you. And so he says to him, why don't you just go back to where you came from? Nobody wants you here, is what he says. Amos, though it wasn't his intention, was moving in on Amaziah's home base, and Amaziah doesn't like it. And so again, he says, go home. Nobody wants you here. Now, I love Amos's response. He doesn't say, no, why don't you go home, or something dumb like that. Um, instead, he says, look, man, he says, I was no prophet. This is verse 14 in Greg's words. Uh, look, man, or Joe Biden. Um, he says, look, man, I was no prophet. I wasn't a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And so he says, look, he says, I'm not here. You think I'm here because I want to be here? I was sitting back at home. I, wasn't, I was sitting there thinking of ways to spice up my life. Maybe I'll become a prophet and go to the north and deliver a difficult message to them that nobody's going to want to hear. He says, I'm here because the Lord sent me here. He's the one that called me from following the flock, and he's the one who said, go prophesy to my people Israel. And so Amos then, he's saying, look, Amaziah, the choice before me is to obey you and go back home or to obey the Lord and stay here and do what he told me to do. Amos, again, he's not a professional prophet. And he wasn't trained at the finest school. He wasn't the son of a prophet, you know, that grew up all his days learning what it was he was supposed to do. But Amos had the one and only qualification that actually mattered, and that was that the Lord sent him. And it was that calling and it was that commissioning that gave Amos both the unction to do what he was doing and the authority to do what it was that he was doing. And so again, he could either be disobedient to the Lord and obey Amaziah and perhaps Jeroboam, or he could disobey those two men and be obedient to the Lord. And that's what he chose to do. He reminds me in the New Testament of when the apostles were told by the authorities that they were not to preach the gospel any longer about Jesus Christ. And Peter, the, sort of the leader, the spokesman of them, this is Acts chapter 5, uh, he says 
uh, that we must obey God rather than man. Let me read it to you. It says, now when they had brought these apostles, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, didn't we strictly charge you not to teach in Jesus's name? And yet here you are, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring Jesus's blood upon us. And again, as we read in verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's what Amos is doing here. Rather than obeying Amaziah, rather than perhaps obeying Jeroboam, he says, I'm going to obey the Lord. He's the one who sent me here with this particular message. In Amos 7, he continues in verse 16. It says, and thus hear the word of the Lord. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, Amaziah. You who say, do not prophesy against Israel, do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Amaziah, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land will be divided up with a measuring line, and you yourself will die in an unclean land, and Israel will surely go into exile from that land. I jotted a little note to myself, yikes, is what I put there. Those are tough words that he says. Now, I want you to notice this. Amos isn't so much pronouncing a curse against Amaziah as he is revealing to Amaziah what is going to happen to Amaziah. Amaziah told Amos to be quiet and to go home. And Amos turns around and he says, look, he says, you just want me to be quiet and to go home as if that's going to stop what's about to occur. What's about to happen is about to happen. Your wife is going to become a forced prostitute in this city when the enemy nations come in and override this city. Your sons are going to fall by the sword, he says in verse 17. Your land is going to be divided up that others might distribute it amongst themselves. And he says, and you yourself are going to die in an unclean land. The idea is you're going to be taken away into exile with the rest of the nation of Israel. These are the things that are going to happen. And as much as Amaziah may have wanted for these things to go away, for Amos to stop, as if that's going to somehow stop these things from happening, God's word through his prophet Amos was going to be fulfilled. And Amos makes that abundantly clear to Amaziah, as much as he may not want that to happen. Verse 8 continues, or excuse me, chapter 8, it says, now this is what the Lord God showed me. So we have the fourth vision that I've been mentioning. This time he says, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple will become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence, he says. So again, the fourth vision, this time a basket of summer fruit. Now, a basket of summer fruit doesn't sound like such a bad thing until we see in verse 2 that the basket of summer fruit is likened to the nation of Israel whose end has come. And so Israel has become like, if you will, like ripe summer fruit that is about ready to spoil, that if you don't get rid of it quickly. I share stories from the time I used to work on the farm. Ripe summer fruit we would put on sale. We'd want people to buy it right away. And you want one, I'll give you five. Take them because they're going to, get, they're going to go bad anyway and we're just going to have to throw them out. And so like a basket of overripe summer fruit that would soon need to be discarded, so too Israel was about to be discarded from the land, removed from a land. 
No longer was God's grace going to be extended to those who were repeatedly rejecting God's grace. And again, as we see there in verse 2, Israel's end has come. Now we can almost imagine Israel's objection as we pick up verse 4 because we hear sort of the Lord's response. And so we can almost imagine Israel saying, oh, wait a minute, but we... You know, we did this, we did that, we went to church, we, and all these kinds of things. But the Lord says this, no, hear this, verse 4. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. Now, there's a lot of little ideas in there. The ephah was a, was a measure, measurement, we might use a word like a bushel. Uh, the shekel was their form of currency here. Um, false balances was how they weighed out. You're getting this much food, so this is how many um, shekels you need to pay us, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of things that are going on in here. But the general idea um, that is being communicated is this. The Lord uses these three or four verses here to return to the familiar theme of the book of Amos, and that's the theme of social injustice that was prevalent within the nation of Israel. And so we see here uh, they are those who are trampling on the needy and destroying the poor of the land. The Lord sees that. He takes notice of that um, there. He says, hear this, you who... Uh, you go through the motions of your religious practices, you, you observe the feast of the new moon, you celebrate the Sabbath, but all the while, while you're doing these things, you, can't, you just can't wait for them to end so you can get back into business where you can rip people off and cheat people once again. And the Lord says, that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm taking notice of. These are the sorts of things I'm going to be judging you for. The chronic corruption and the cheating of the land. The Lord sees that. He takes notice of it. You, we need to see that and take notice of it. Cheating and dishonesty in business is not a small sin that goes unnoticed by the Lord. The Lord is very clear. He sees those things. And so there are a lot of people, Christians, that will rationalize, well, that's just the way the business world works. That's just the way we have to do things in order to make money. You can do it that way if you want to. But know this, that God sees it and he will hold those accountable who practice such practices. And that's what he's doing with the nation of Israel here. He says in verse 7, The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And so we may forget the many ways that we wrong other people, Sometimes we even forget the way that people wrong us. It's not a common. Somebody might come up to you and say, look, I really wanted to apologize about that thing that happened two years ago. And you're like, I don't even remember what you're talking about. Sometimes we even forget how others wrong us, or we forget certainly how we wrong others. But notice this, the Lord sees every instance, and he takes notice of it, and it says, and he will never forget. We read that there in verse 7. Amos goes on in verse 9, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your feast into mourning and your song, all of your songs into lamentation 
and I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. That's not a big deal. And I'll make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Uh, all of those are pictures, the sackcloth, the, the shaving of the head, the mourning. They're all pictures of mourning that would take place as a result of this judgment that had come upon them. And so we see here now the Lord is pouring out his judgment. He speaks of the sun going down at noon and the earth being darkened in broad daylight. He speaks of their feast that are actually being turned into times of mourning. He, he speaks of their songs, become these like celebrations becoming songs of lament or songs of mourning there. And then it, it's as if Amos here, the Lord here, is searching for this adequate comparison. And he says, I will make it like the mourning for an only son, an only son that has died prematurely and the mourning that would go with it. This is going to be a dark day indeed for the people whom elsewhere the Lord has referred to as the, the very apple of his eye, that thing that the pupil focuses in on, that was Israel. This is a dark day indeed for those uh, individuals. And again, if only, if only they had hearkened and returned, the many times the Lord had reached out to them, but they refused to. God continues his uh, pronouncement of judgment, verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men will faint for thirst. And those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and they will never rise again. And so in addition to all the things that we were already looking at that would happen in the land, the Lord speaks of a coming day of judgment where there will be a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. And frankly, this may be the strongest of the judgments against Israel because it's the word of the Lord that will provide them the way of return. But tragically, even though they run to and fro, even though they wander from sea to sea and they go from the north to the east, searching for the word of the Lord, he says here that they will not be able to find it. Israel had pushed aside God's word so many times in the past, and now, after this judgment comes upon them, they're going to find themselves in the place where they cannot find it, even though that's the very thing they want to do. And frankly, as I consider this, I fear, but for the grace of God, that America is moving in the very same direction that Israel moved into. I fear that many of us, even in the church of God, the, the so-called Christian church, are moving toward this place here. And so I can't control the rest of the nation. I, I can't control anybody, quite frankly. Um, even, I'm having a little trouble with myself at times. Um, but I, you know, I can't speak to the whole nation. I can't speak to the entire church in and of itself. But I can share with you this morning. And let me ask you this question. How about yourself? How are you in response to the word of God? So do you respond to God's word when it speaks into your life? And of course, I mean respond positively if he's leading in a direction following that particular direction. Do you do that? When the Holy Spirit brings an area of conviction in your life, 
Are you responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, again, in a positive direction? Or do you push it aside? Do you push it aside until a time when you feel it'll be more convenient to respond? Or do you push it aside until, well, you know what, someday I'm going to get right and I'll deal with that when I get older or come to the end of my days or uh, when I get out of college, whatever it may be. Do you push that aside? We need to take serious care that we do not harden our hearts to the word of God. Because as the scripture says the time and demonstrates here, the time may come because we have hardened our hearts so many times to what it was that God was trying to say to us that the Lord will stop speaking to us about that. And so once more, as I bring this to a close today, I want to end with a phrase now that I think we've ended, a verse we've ended the last three sermons with. And that is this. It says, today, Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of the rebellion. And so if God is speaking to you day, today and he has been speaking to you, by his word and through his Holy Spirit, I just want to encourage you, listen, respond, say yes, Lord. As hard as it may be for me to follow, that's what I want to do. And so with that, we'll bring our, our study today uh, in Amos to a close. I want to encourage you, read ahead next week. We're going to uh, finish the book of Amos as the Lord allows. We're also going to have a time of communion next week. And so if you're gathering with us at home, then I'll encourage you during this week, gather up some uh, communion supplies, some bread, some juice, those kinds of things, so that we can celebrate together the conclusion of the book. We'll celebrate communion together. It should be a good time. Let's pray together. And Father, we, we acknowledge that the tendency of our hearts... Um, could very easily go the same direction as the people of Israel that Amos was speaking to. And Lord, if we're not careful, we could drift further and further and further away from you. Lord, as we sort of raise our hand and we stiff arm you to stay back from us. And Lord, we know there's a very real danger and risk that in doing that, our hearts might harden over. And we can miss what it is that you have for us and what it is you want to say to us. And, and certainly, Lord, we know that's not for our good. We see that here with the nation of Israel. And so before we get to that place, Lord, we want to be people that maintain a soft heart toward your leading. And so, Lord, I do pray for any of us that are watching, Lord, that have been struggling and that have been uh, ignoring you or dismissing you. Lord, would you even in this moment, by your mercy and your grace, would you bring those folks uh, back to yourself, ready to receive from you? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Lord, that we would all maintain soft hearts, ready to receive all that you have for us. 